0: Well, do keep your Bibles open to this great chapter, which is unremittingly good news. We haven't always had good news when we've been looking at the prophet Isaiah. He's had a lot of bad news to deliver to the people of his day and to the people of every day, to the end of history, until Christ comes again. But in this chapter, he is talking to The people of God, he is talking to the church of God, and he is giving us undiluted good news. There is in the Bible very often language which morphs over time. And one of the words that morphs over time is this word, Zion. It has a historical reference, but by the time we get to this chapter, Zion has become a code word for a greater reality. Uh, Christians sometimes sing a hymn, Savior, if of Zion's city I through grace a member am. And that reminds us that the way we use the word Zion in Christian circles refers to a city that transcends space and time and history, the city that finds its location ultimately where God is, if there is a place where God is most Intensely present, then that is Zion, and that we find our identity as Christians today in being citizens of that city, Zion. And that is our destiny. Our destiny is to live where our citizenship is in the presence of God. Now, that may be all Greek to you, or Scottish, or whatever is foreign. To you. So let me backtrack and try and put this in perspective. The Bible really is a story of two cities. There is the city that humanity built. In the beginning, cities were built by people who were rebellious against God. The ungodly people built cities. They did that to make themselves secure. They felt that was the only way that they could resist a rather a rather volatile God who would from time to time send things like floods and, and destroy them. And so they built cities for security. They built cities to try and remedy the chaos caused by sin. And Isaiah has talked about such cities. In fact, in chapter 24, Isaiah even foresaw what we might describe as a global city, a global village. And he calls it in Isaiah 24, verse 10, a city of meaninglessness. Now, we live from a perspective in which we can grasp something of what Isaiah must have had in mind. We we can actually understand from our vantage point of time what people in Isaiah's day could not understand. We can actually get our heads around a global village because we live in one and it's becoming increasingly complex. And we are increasingly finding that our welfare is dependent on the welfare of other people in other parts of the world for good or ill. So we're beginning to understand what Isaiah is describing. And what he says, by the way, about that city of meaninglessness is this, that it is doomed ultimately to fail us. In the book of Revelation, that global village is called Babylon the Great. It's given a name, the name of an ancient city. But it's very much a global city, a global village. And it is destined to collapse, to implode, and ultimately to disappear. In contrast to that, Isaiah has talked about another city. He calls it in chapter 26, a strong city, a city of salvation. And he said that the people who belong to that city are safe and secure for eternity. Well, now we find the name of that city is the city of Zion. It's more than an idea. It's a reality. We, we read about that from Hebrews chapter 12 earlier in the service. We read these words that through our coming to Christ, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Coming to Christ, we put our identity in the city of God rather than the city of man. The community of God's people, the church of God, which has its ultimate focus really around the throne of God in that place where He is intensely present, Zion. Elsewhere in the Bible, we read about the New Jerusalem. We hear about people who uh, set out looking for a city that had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. If there is one verse that I think is true of Christian people all over the world, and certainly through all of time, it is the language that the writer to the Hebrews uses when he says, here we have no continuing city. In other words, here we have no city that is going to last. Because our citizenship, as Paul puts it, is in heaven, from which we look for a Savior. So there's this contrast all the time between what we see around us and what we cannot see, but which is nonetheless even more real and lasting than what we can see. Everything in this earthly city, in this global village, is doomed to die. Everything to do with the new Jerusalem is destined to live. Now in this, in this chapter, we have a poem that is arranged in such a way that if you can imagine for a moment a timer in which it's wide at the top and then comes narrowing in at the waist and then emerges back out again to resemble the top part, the center of the poem really is at the heart of it, and it's verses 12 to 14. God is talking to His people. We know that because He uses the feminine here. Whenever God addresses His church, He always uses the feminine to describe the church as His people. We're going to find out later why. Uh, The answer is that the church is His bride, and He intends to give her an eternal home. So we're all part of the bride, and so He's addressing us as a community rather than as individuals. And the community, as I say, is in the feminine. And here's his purpose for us. Verse 12. The nation and kingdom that will not serve you, that is, his church, will perish. Those nations will be utterly laid waste. But all the best things in the world, the glory of Lebanon, shall come to you. The cypress, the plain, the pine, those were very significant commodities in those days, shall come to you to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. God is saying that he resides among his people. He resides on Mount Zion. Mount Zion was the little mountain in Jerusalem at the top of the hill where they built the temple. And it was always only ever pointing upwards to the real temple, the place where God really lives. And what this is saying is that all the wealth of the world is going to come to the church ultimately to beautify the place of my sanctuary. That's where God dwells. He dwells with His church. And He will dwell with His church forever. And He will make the place of His feet glorious. And those who afflict you shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow at your feet, and they shall call you, church, the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So here is the, here is the heart of the poem. The poem is addressed to the people of God as a corporate entity, as a, as a city, and later on it will be described as a bride, but, but right now as a city, a community of people, God is saying to His people wherever they are in the world, this is my purpose and plan for you, that your fortunes will be reversed, that all the negatives will be turned to the positive, and that your destiny will be a destiny conjoined to my purposes. You will be the place of my feet. You will be my sanctuary. I will make your place glorious. And in the end, people will call you Zion, the the city of the Holy One of Israel. So what we want to say right at the beginning of this, our discussion of this passage is that Zion is the key to the world's destiny. The church, the glorious church, is the key to the world's destiny. Let's see how that's unpacked here. First of all, we find that Zion is a light to the nations. Zion is a light to the nations. At the end of chapter 59, there was a great note of promise that for those who acknowledge their sin, as we've done already this morning, confessing our sins, to those who confess their sin and turn to the Lord, our Redeemer will come. A mediator, someone who will come between God and man to bring salvation to the world. That's the backdrop to the opening lines of chapter 60. For the focus is on something coming. Your light has come. Now now the, the prophet by the Spirit is addressing the people after he has come, after he has arrived, after this salvation has been delivered, this rescue has been accomplished. Look at the language of give light twice, light twice, the glory of the Lord twice, brightness. What does he have in mind? Does he have the church, us, as a people in ourselves? Absolutely not. He's made that very clear. The church as the world sees us today is fractured, fragile, and often failing. But no, here is the church as God sees the church And the light comes. The light is not us. It is, in fact, the Messiah himself. He is the light that comes into the world. Now, why is this light necessary? Look at verse 2. There you have an echo in verse 2 of the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. Darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the people. That first expression, darkness shall cover the earth you find that expression way back in Genesis 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's the reality, and that was the background to the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, and God saying by His Word, let there be light, and there was light. Now, why does he go back to creation? Well, because he's going to be talking about a new creation, God is going to do this all over again. He's going to bring about a new creation that will begin with the new creation of people. That is, of their spirits, their souls. They will become new creatures, new creations through their connection to the Messiah, Jesus. That's where it begins for you and me. The beginning of the new creation is already happening in the lives of believers as they are born again into this new world. First of all, their spirits. And then at the end of history, this new creation that has begun will burst into full flower as our bodies are new created and as the universe is renewed in the new heaven's And the new earth. But it's not only that, that that there is a new creation. There's something else going on here because there is not only a reference back to creation, emphasizing that he's talking now about a new creation, but there's also an emphasis here going back to the time of the Exodus and to the thick darkness that was over the people in Egypt. When the curse of God and the wrath of God and the plagues of God came, you remember, to Egypt. So, the thick darkness refers not just to creation. The thick darkness refers to the spiritual darkness in which people in the world are to be found. The Bible often says this. Right into the Ephesians, Paul can say to these new Christians, At one time, you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Before we become Christians, what is our problem? Well, our great problem is that we cannot see anything wonderful about Jesus. We cannot believe what we're told about Jesus. We don't find in him anything that we love. We don't find anything in his people that we, that we like. There is nothing about the, what is in the Bible that attracts our affection or our allegiance. Before we become Christians, what is our problem? Our problem is that we cannot see things in the spiritual realms. Our eyes are blinded. Our minds are darkened. Darkness is the the condition in which we find ourselves. Jesus said, for example, he said that people are walking in darkness. They love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Here is the big problem, you see, with people today in our world. The big problem is that we can... We can preach the gospel to them and we can share our literature with them, but people are, they are invincibly in darkness. And they need the light to penetrate. They need the Messiah to penetrate the darkness. And that is precisely what God does when someone is converted, when someone is born again. The God who said, Paul writes, let light shine out of darkness at the first creation Now in a new creation says this, he shines into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now you look at those two expressions in verse 1. Your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. We've been learning that the glory is a created manifestation or appearance of God. God is invisible, so He creates something by which He can manifest Himself to what He has made, to the people He's made. In the times of Moses, it was a great cloud of smoke with fire at the center of it. Then Jesus came, and people said about Jesus, we have seen His glory, the glory of the only God. In other words, the God who appeared to Moses as cloud and fire appeared to the disciples as flesh and blood in the humanity of Jesus, and He has taken that on permanently. The glory of the Lord has risen. That is a permanent manifestation of the invisible God in the person and in the humanity of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. We are destined to see God in the flesh of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. God has taken humanity into Himself in order that He might forever reveal Himself to us, His people, as a human being in the flesh of our God-man, the Lord Jesus. That is good news. It's the best news. That's why when Jesus is born born, the message is that your light has come. Back in '50, 50, chapter 58, "Then shall your light break forth like the dawn." Or chapter 40, talking about the coming of the Messiah, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed." That's what happened when Jesus came into the world, and the angels said, "Glory to God in the highest and peace to people on the earth. God brings light. Into the darkness, not only of creation, but of men and women's minds. The way we lived in Richmond in in London was the the area where Bertrand Russell used to live. Bertrand Russell was was a, a humanist and an atheist. Bertrand Russell said once about himself, There is darkness within, and when I die, there will be darkness without. Darkness within Darkness without. Here is the good news of the message. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth. Thick darkness, the people. But then the glory of the Lord will rise upon you. His glory shall be seen upon you. Well, this is an amazing thing, you see. That the church should be visited by the glory of God. Do you see what he's saying here? The glory of the Lord will arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. People will see your connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, this is the effect of it. The effect of it is that the church that is visited by the Messiah will see the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, coming to your light. Even important people coming to the brightness of your rising. It's a great description of Zion as a light to the nations. Why are we a light to the nations? Not because we are the light, but because Christ is the light of the world. And insofar as we hold out Christ to the world, we are lights in the world, sharing the good news of Christ to the nations. Well, then the second thing about Zion in this chapter is that Zion is a magnet to the nations. In verse 4, Uh, The people are told to lift up their eyes all around and see Gather together and come to you Your sons come from afar Your daughters carried on the hip and so on Then you will see and be radiant And your heart will thrill and exult It's a great description The prophet is saying to the people of God Saying to you and I Here's your destiny Look, Look around at the world you're living in This is what God is going to do It's an amazing thing All throughout the book of Isaiah, the the people of God have been described as a remnant. You know what a remnant is? A remnant is a a little bit from the edge of a piece of cloth. Maybe you get a remnant to take home and to to hold up against the wall or to put against other bits of furniture to see whether or not it fits or whatever. Just a little bit that you get. Of course, in America, you'd get a bigger bit than you would in Britain. You only get a little thing in Britain. But that's just… The mentality, uh, uh, but which they, they, they just can't get beyond that. Uh, but here's, that's, that's where the church was all, always described in the book of Isaiah as, as a, a little remnant, a little flock. Jesus called them a little flock. And we've always been, we've always been insignificant in, in the eyes of the world. There have been times we thought we were more significant. There are times we thought our hands were on the levers of power. But in fact, the church as it really is in the world is Always oh, a little flock. And yet, listen to the voice of God here. Lift up your eyes around and see they all gather together and they come to you. The people they despised, they will come from afar and you will see and be radiant. Your heart will thrill and exult. He is talking here about the end of history when we begin to see all those whom God has been calling to Himself coming to that heavenly Zion coming into the, the kingdom of God and we see them and as they come we can't believe how they're coming in hordes from, from, the, from the east and from the north and the south and the west as they come pouring into the kingdom of God in fact this is the destiny of the church it's the destiny of the church to be that vehicle that God uses to bring people from all over the world and reconcile them to God to God And reconcile them to one another. You see the description in verse 6 and 7. He he picks from, you know, the Arabic lands and and from further east and from down south into Africa and up north towards Russia and and as far east as he can, west as he can go to Tarshish and so on. They're coming with, with all that they have. They're coming to belong to the people of God. And why is he saying all this? he's saying, he's underlining this, these people come to you. Why do they come to you? Why do they come to the church? Well, they come to the church because there is only one message for the world. They come to the church because the church is the only repository of final truth for all human beings wherever they are in the world. When Jesus said to that Samaritan woman, Salvation is of the Jews. He was saying to that Samaritan woman, there is no salvation outside of the message delivered to the Jews. And in fact, it will will be a Jew who will be the Savior of the world. That's what he was telling her. There's only one way of salvation for everybody, for you Samaritans and for everybody else. When Jesus said that, he could equally have said to the people of our day, extra ecclesiam nulla salus which means outside the church there is no salvation Martin Luther spoke of the necessity of the church in the salvation of men and women let me read to you something that Martin Luther wrote he said therefore those who would find Christ must first find the church how do we know where Christ and his faith are If we did not know where his believers are. And he would know nothing, he would know nothing of Christ. And he would not trust Christ or would be able to build a bridge to Christ if he did not first go to the church. And he goes on to explain the church is not wood and stone, but the company of believing people. So you have to go and find out what they believe, how they live, what they teach. If you want to find Christ, that is is normally the way it is. Luther goes on to say, outside of the Christian church, there is no truth. There is no Christ. There is no salvation. John Calvin says something similar. Beyond the pale of the church, there's no forgiveness of sins. No salvation can be hoped for. Those to whom God is a father must have the church for their mother. Those were the words of Cyprian quoted by Calvin. And in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our confession of faith in this church, it says this, The visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And what that's saying is that normally, under normal circumstances, people are not going to find Christ without the help of the church. Now, that is not to say that God can suspend that in ex- ex- extenuating circumstances and reveal Himself by visions and dreams to people in places where they have no access to the church. In Muslim lands, for example, where people are coming to faith in large numbers because God is showing Himself to them. He's he's interrupting His normal way of doing things. But what the, what the confession is saying, that normally, normally, there is no salvation without the church. The church is the herald of truth. And it's given to the church one day to reunite the d- divided humanity. Look at, look at the middle of uh, of these verses in verse 6. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You remember when Jesus was born, there were those wise men who came from the east, probably from The region of Babylon, there in northern Iraq. And they brought with them their gold and their frankincense to the baby Jesus. And they were the first fruits of this great harvest that Isaiah is describing. That was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of the people who were going to come and worship Jesus. That's why there's such good news when they come. They're the good news that this great prophecy of Isaiah is going to be fulfilled as the global family of God is gathered by God to Jesus through his church. And these people who come as converts will find the favor of God, verse 10. Foreigners shall build up your walls and their kings minister to you. Why? Because in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. God is not hiding the fact that He's not always pleased with His church, and He doesn't always have to discipline His church. Sometimes He has to give His church and His churches a good shaking because of our disobedience. We must never for one minute think that any of our upsets or whatever that happened to us from time to time in the life of a church are not Governed by the hand of God who can discipline us as well as bless us. But he has mercy on his church. And so in spite of our fractures and our failures, he nonetheless is pleased to add to the church daily those who are being saved. At the end of chapter 59, you remember we, we saw in those chapters a description of the church as a worldly church and a formal church. And then at the end of that 59th chapter, we were reminded that the true church of God are those people who acknowledge their sin, who confess their sin. The reason we confess our sin in worship is that that is the first mark of a believer, Jesus says, poor in spirit and mourning over sin. Absolutely vital as a mark of the believer. Zion is a magnet to the nations, drawing people into the family of God. But that's in the militant phase of the church's life on earth. There is more to come. For the third thing we learn from this chapter is that Zion is a home to the nations. In God's gospel covenant with Abraham, he made the promise that through Abraham's singular offspring, male offspring, the Messiah, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And here is the blessing promised to Abraham now coming to fulfillment. As he describes the uh, the incoming of these foreigners into the city of God, he now goes beyond in verse 11. He goes beyond now this period where they're being added to the ultimate day when the city is complete. And the people of God have gathered and are part of that city in the future. We're thinking of eternity now. Separation of the sheep from the goats. The separation of believers and unbelievers has happened. And now the believers themselves are getting, coming to terms with this new reality. And in this new reality, they find this great reconciliation of people from all over the world. This was something the early Christians had to come to terms with. Uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, you have the first council of the church, and that first council is dealing with the fact that although their evangelists have gone out and they've started preaching to the Jews and they've gone to the synagogues first, they've been rejected by, by and large by the synagogues, and, and so they've gone out into the marketplace, and what they found was that the Gentiles, the goyim, the off-scouring, the dogs— They were the people who were responding to the good news of the Messiah. And they came to discuss this in Jerusalem. And James, who was moderating the meeting at that occasion, sums up their discussion in saying this, Simeon, that is Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And he adds, with this the words of the prophets agree.'" He's thinking of Isaiah here. That's the picture that Isaiah is painting. Foreigners will build up your walls. Their kings will minister to you. That's who's going to come into the kingdom of God. It's not just going to be Jews, but Gentiles. It's going to be a global. It's God's alternative to the global village. It is the global city of God. What a wonderful picture it's painted here. Look at verse 8. Who are these who fly like a cloud, like doves to their windows, like homing pigeons, you know, fluttering back up onto the, you've seen it on television, I'm sure you've not seen it in your house, but then you go, there you go, homing pigeons coming back. Where I grew up, there was a piece of waste ground, and in that waste ground some local people had built these, these wooden shacks, and these wooden shacks were for their pigeons, And they were homing pigeons. They would go off in groups and they would come back. And you would hear the noise of these pigeons as you walk past every day and you would see them flying back. And that's the picture that's being painted here. Who are these people who are coming to Zion? Well, they come from the coastlands, as far away as somebody in the Middle East could imagine. They come from the far side of the West, Tarshish. That's on the West coast of Spain. They bring them from afar. And what are they coming for? Because they're coming for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because He has made you beautiful. It's God's purpose for His church. He's made you beautiful. Isn't that that good news? If I was you, I would think that was good news. That's good news for me that He's going to make the church beautiful. Well, look at verse 11. Here's the eternal destiny of the people. Your gates will be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. You know in ancient world you had to shut the city gates because there would be intruders or invaders. There's no intruder and there's no invader here. The city gates are open. But it's not just because of intruders and invaders. They don't have them anymore. It's because there's so much activity going on. They have to keep them open all the time. There are people coming all the time with the wealth of the nations. Nations and kingdoms will come to serve you. And if they don't serve you, they will perish. They will perish. In the new heaven and new earth, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious, says the Lord. It's a picture of eternity. No more threat of war or plunder or robbery. The ceaseless streaming in of those bringing their gifts. You know, you think of all the gifts that humanity brings with it. All of the technologies, all of the ideas, all of the artistry, all of the creativity. All of the big ideas and beautiful ideas that humanity has been conceiving of throughout its long history. Think of all of those things. Think of the architecture and the beauty that men are able to manufacture and make. Think of all of that and understand this. All of that is the inheritance of God's people. Everything. It's all coming to you. You, You're the only people who are going to inherit it. The unbeliever will not. When the unbeliever dies, that's the last time he'll use That Ferrari. But here's the the great view of this, you see. Look at what he goes on to say. All who despised you shall bow at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord. Zion, the Holy One of Israel. We need to see the church as God sees it. This is the church as God sees it. How it's going to be. How it's going to be. When C.S. Lewis wrote Screwtape Letters, it was a series of letters from a senior devil to a junior devil. And in one of the letters, he says this to the junior devil. The senior devil says this to the junior devil. One of our great allies at present is the church. Don't misunderstand me, he says to the junior devil. I do not mean the church as we see her. Spread out through all time and space. Rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That's how hell sees the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. They know that. They hate that. What do we see? The senior devil writing to the junior devil says, Fortunately, to the believers, they can't see the church as we see it. They go to church And they only see the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face. They're handed a shiny little book with a liturgy that nobody understands, or another little book that contains a corrupt text of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, in very small print. And when they go to their pew, they look around them and they see a selection of their neighbors, usually people they've avoided. And what you you need to do is to make their mind flit to and fro between the expression the body of Christ and the actual faces of the people who are sitting around them in church. That will get them down. But I want you to focus on what the senior devil says about the church. Spread out through time and space, rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That's the church's God season. And its destiny is the city of God. We didn't read from verse 15, but let me me put it to you like this. Just run through those verses. Once you've been forsaken, but now you're a joy from age to age. Violence no more heard in your land. No devastation, no destruction. Your walls call salvation. Your gates praise. No more the sun and light or the moon to to give you light because the Lord will be your everlasting light and God will be your glory. The sun will never go down. The Lord Himself will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will be ended. Your days of mourning over death and your days of mourning over your own sin will be ended. That's the point. Your people shall all be righteous at last. Oh, yes, we're righteous now in Christ. We've been declared righteous. Therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But we're not righteous in practice, we're, get, we're working on that. But here we are, here in the new Jerusalem, we are righteous at last. And we will possess the land forever. And you'll be called a branch of my planting. The work of my hands. That I might be glorified. And the smallest one among you. A mighty nation. I am the Lord. And in its time. I will hasten it. This is our destiny. In its time. I will hasten it. And that time is not yet, but that time is coming, the time of ultimate salvation for the people of God. This is the forever promise of God for His church. And in the book of Revelation, John is given to see that new Jerusalem, suffused with the light of God. And the city, he says, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Here is the forever promise to the church the glory of God. No wonder this chapter opens with the word arise, shine. It uses a word that's used when Jonathan, who is starving, discovers some honey and he puts the honey to his mouth and we're told his face shone. My mother, who was always telling embarrassing stories about me as a little boy, would tell people about the first time I tasted meringue. She went into great lengths about the story of the bit of meringue on the tip of my tongue and my eyes opening wide, and then my smile broadening in my face and my little Childish, impish face, shining at this new flavor, this taste of pure sugar. (laughs) That's what Isaiah is telling us to do. Brothers, sisters, church, your light has already come, the Messiah has arrived. And here's your future. Here's your future. This is where the church is going. See the church as God sees it. And the glory of the Lord will be seen upon you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word and write that word on our hearts. And cause our, our eyes to glow with brightness, our faces to shine with joy. That this is not the end of the story. That Better is yet to come, and that the glorious to come make the living of life now not just bearable, but rather something of anticipation, of excited anticipation of what is yet to be. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.